human beings of the world, it's time to enter the spoilerverse through our secret portal at the beautiful Arctic Club in downtown Seattle. Ladies and gentlemen, with our hosts John, Kenrick and Casey, it's time to enter Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on scpod.net. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcatcher, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us, leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Citizens of the Republic of Spoilerverse, welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan. That is Mr. Horsley. And today on the show, well, it's... 1996 Eisner Award-winning creator, writer, artist of Strangers in Paradise, Terry Moore. Yeah, I feel like we should mention that he won back-to-back Harvey Awards, too. One for lettering and one for best cartoonist. That's impressive and awesome because it's two different categories. That's awesome. That is awesome. That is awesome. Yeah, and Casey had a chance to sit down with him and talk to him about his career, about his work on Strangers in Paradise about his work on Spider-Man, all the stuff that he's done. This guy's got a great career. He's an amazing artist, and you should definitely check him out if you haven't heard of him before. But if you're coming to listen to this show and you know comic books, you've probably heard of him, or, or at least you've seen his work if you, have, if you haven't heard of the name. Because I know some people I know there's people out there who read the books but don't ever look at the creator's names. And that, for a long right. time, that was me. Uh, that was now me, I, too. Yeah. Now, as we do more of this, now that I do more, I actually take more note of who works on books. But it's – yeah. Yeah. Some of that's fun though, because sometimes you you'll read a story like, okay, like today, this morning, you and I are having a conversation about Jim Shooter, mm-hmm. and you didn't know that at 16 years old he wrote the first Superman versus Flash race. Yeah, Superman one and nine. I had no idea. That's a classic issue drawn by Kurt Swan. I have that. I have and a copy one of, of the it. classic storylines of yeah. all time are Superman and Flash. Yeah, we're talking like, wait, that was Jim Shooter, and I looked it up. I'm like, yeah, it is Jim Shooter. Oh my god, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Hey, before we get into this interview. Yeah. I have an amazing idea. Oh, I, and this is new. Johnny does not know what I'm going to say right now. I don't. He does I don't. not know the words coming out of my mouth. I don't. So if you're a fan of the show and you listen to the end, you hear us always say in an Oceans of Podcast, we are Cthulhu. And as Cthulhu compels you to do, open the mind and read more. But what I want to know is what does Cthulhu compel you to do? Hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. Tell us what it is, and we will add that in, and maybe we'll pick yours, and instead of our one that we always use, which is open the mind and read more, which I think is important because you should open your mind, but maybe we'll use yours and what Cthulhu compels you to do. Yeah, I like that. That's cool. Yeah, I knew you would. That's why I didn't even bother telling you. (laughs) I'm on board. (laughs) (laughs) But after this... Let's just sit back and listen to Terry Moore in his own words. I care more about reading a story if I can get attached to these people like a TV show, you know, as opposed to oh, look, here's my really wild style, and they look like balloon animals, 
and they say wacky things, then, you know, a little bit of that goes a long way. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. So you you didn't really have a, a formal education in, in illustration other than like the, the core. So so mm-hmm. when you when you finally decided to make that leap, did people think you were crazy? Did they think you were nuts or were you just what what was the impetus for you to go like, this is what I'm doing now? Yeah, you know, there were two there were two responses. Normal people <laughs> I guess you could call, you know, regular normal people that don't think about these things. They're called muggles in Harry Potter, right? Yeah. <laughs> the muggles thought this man's having a midlife crisis, you know. I might as well have been saying, you know, I want to be a professional football player. <laughs> <laughs> and they were all like, mm hmm, mm hmm. But when I would show things to, say, a comic shop owner or another artist, they would be impressed and they would encourage me. And so those were the people I was trying to get to. So I listened to them and did not listen to the, the you know, the sensible adults around me. So I had, I had selective hearing. <laughs> <laughs> but but you also you had the, the wife and kids at home was what what was the progression there? Well, the there was the rule you can imagine from any wife which is you better keep your day job and don't change. Yeah. <laughs> we, not, we better not go back one penny backwards. And it took me, I did both for a year and a half before the comic book was more important than the day job. You know, um, when I was at, edi- I was editing freelance by that time. And when you do that, the, it's you're charging the client $300 an hour to be in a video editing suite. And I had a phone call that was trying to get to me from my comic book distributor. And if I didn't take the phone call, the, the ship, my entire shipment of new books was going to have to wait a month. And that phone call was worth $10,000 to me. And I had a, so I had a $300 video problem or a $10,000 comic book problem. So you can tell which one I did. Oh, yes. That's when I knew it was time to stop. So I stopped editing at that point and just focused on the comics and never went back. That's that's amazing. And with your with your job as a video editor, did that help you? Did you take anything from that in terms of like storytelling and pacing and stuff like that, it seems like it might kind of feed into uh, at least a little bit in the, in the back of your head while you're putting together a page. You are, you've nailed it. You're absolutely right. It did. Well, I'm a very smart man. I I can tell. (laughs) I mean, there's just you and Einstein. He sounded just like you. He, you know, uh, it doesn't surprise me one bit. (laughs) I know. But yeah, no, no, you're, you're exactly right. I, you know, uh, if I hadn't done the editing, the, the, the job of me as an editor was to sit all day and watch these actors, every single take that the actor made. So you're watching every nuance, you know. So I'm watching 30 hours of footage to, get, to give you that 20-minute documentary. And I watched, you know, all the good ones and the bad ones and all that. And it just really – I learned that the people who seem to be great actors – their face was in constant motion, even when they looked like they were static. 
something was going on that was giving off this radiation, this this charisma that you could not turn away from, you know? So even if you think, say like, say Robert De Niro is giving you the glare on the screen and you think, well, that's just a freeze frame. No, if there's a difference between the live version and the freeze frame. And there's something about that live version that me with my art artistic bent, I would look at it and think, how is he doing that? Is one eye a little narrower than the other? Is it the little set of the mouth? Is it the flare of the nostril? You know, and I really had years to think about it. So it was wow. so much better than going to art class and somebody's drawing circles and connecting them, you know, and going over gross anatomy. You know, by that I mean big picture anatomy. Yeah. So, so you you were literally paid for for a long while to look, like seriously, deeply look at people, study people. Yeah. And so it's how they're walking, how they dress, how how the clothes hang how their expressions work. And I remember one time, like, you, okay, try this. Here's something everybody can try. If you have a, next time you see a copy of American Pie with Allison Hannigan talking about band camp, uh, <laughs> <laughs> just run through that and put your, put your finger on the, on, the freeze, on the clicker frame and run through it frame by frame slowly and watch her face run all over the place. I mean, no two frames are alike. And, it did two things. It showed me that how alive the expressive faces are, but it also showed me how much distortion there is in a face. Because one of the things I noticed about people who grew up, say, drawing hero comics only, say, for instance, they learn one way to draw the X-Men. And yes. Yes. their X-Men has two expressions, grim or grimmer. And when you look at photos of the family over the, over the last five years, Every photo can be different of your, you know, your siblings. And when you look at, say, actors and look at their freeze frames and run through them slow-mo, their face is very elastic and, and all over the place. And it really freed me up when it came time to drawing Kachu. And it was hard to figure out how to make her pretty and then how to do it again and again. And then it realized that I didn't have to memorize it one way like you would if it was a comic strip, like for better or worse. They really only are three or four expressions, you know, that she learned how to draw. But if you're drawing something like Strangers in Paradise, you've got to draw a hundred expressions. And there's going to be attractive ones and not attractive ones and gross ones. And I mean, in my book, people can sneeze and pick their nose and pull their mouth apart. And, you know, it's just roll their eyes. It's everything, you know, and I, I like that freedom. And I learned it all in the editing suite, not in an art class. That is, see, my, my initial, you know, earlier when you were talking about your job, it that just can't, I, I didn't even think it would be that much, like that deep. Yeah. Of what you pulled over from. That's amazing to me. You know, I didn't notice that the first year or two or three. It was when I was burned out and near the last four years and I was starting to draw comic strips at home and I was working on character designs a lot. And how do I keep from drawing that same cartoon face over and over like amateurs? And how do I get, you know, how do I get liberated with this? And that editing suite answered my problems. It really was the catalyst to go home and, and, and 
think outside the box. You know, it was the, it was the, I think if you only had, if everybody had the same two or three influences, we'd all be the same. But when you get somebody unusual, it's because they had a weird, weird ingredient in the recipe, you know, that was my weird ingredient. That's, that's amazing. So yeah, you, you started, you speaking of Kachu and, and Strangers in Paradise, you started that in, in 93. Yeah. And not very long afterwards, you, you got the Eisner Award for Best Serialized Story. That is starting off strong, man. Holy smokes. I, you know, once I hit, once I got started and the book came out, I had like a golden boy summer for about three years. You know, it was just wonderful. But I, I hit at a time when everybody was looking for things like that. You know, there was a lot of indie comics and there were a lot of comic shops and a lot of money and everybody was buying everything. So it was just a good timing. I was lucky. Yeah, there was there was a really great indie resurgence at, at the time. Like I'm thinking like Peer Bags Hate and uh, Eight Ball and right. um, all these other fantastic comics. And then you come along and people go nuts over it. And it had something a lot of other comics at the time didn't have. I, I remember, so my first exposure to your work was uh, an article I read about it in, um, in Wizard Magazine, which when you grow up in Alabama and there's not a uh, comic shop around, but the grocery store has Wizard Magazine, Mm-hmm. Holy smokes! That is a uh, a window into oh, yeah. a world that you don't really get. So yeah, yeah. I just remember being fascinated with your work through that, and actually went to a comic shop when we went into town and picked up an issue of Strangers in Paradise, and I loved how you specifically how your illustrations were, and they they were not like the the atypical capes and punches comics. And so it it always, I can see how people really latched onto that. Did you get any pushback from people when you first started out just by virtue of being different? Not from the quality of being different. I, I always felt like I had people who were fans of the work, but then there were a lot of people who were, who were purist and they found the work sloppy because there wasn't consistency and consistency of design and things like that. So from a critique standpoint, they were, they would, they would see that, you know? So I definitely was not accepted in all circles in terms of like just being a cartoonist that shows up. And I, you know, and I focused on the story instead because I felt like if it's just about the art, there's only so many there, that's a small room to talk, to play to. But if it's about the story, you're playing to everybody. And so I was writing this drawing for people that didn't care what the art looked like as long as it worked, you know? So what was your inspiration behind the the storylines that you did? Because, I mean, you really broke a lot of ground in comics, just picking up some of the issues that you did. Like, I mean, you talked about the AIDS crisis a little bit. You talked about rape and uh, prostitution and all kinds of other body image, which is an, a very important thing for people to talk about, and nobody wants to talk about it. So, yes. 
what how did how did you go there especially at just as i mean as a as a dude how did you know to that that was something that you might want to write about well i had i'd grown up in a house with women and i liked women i mean even from young teenage you know i was always i had a lot of favorite actresses you know when i was 12 i had a crush on natalie wood and all the other actresses of the time you know so it, I was just always looking and noticing uh, what women were dealing with and what they were going through, you know. And, of course, my sister would bring her problems home from school, and I would hear what it was like to have your feelings hurt, you know, and see all that. So, and then my mom dealing with, you know, strange men getting too close and talking, and you, they won't go away. And so, you know, you're a little boy staying next to her. You see this crap, you know, and you think yeah, it sticks with you. So... I had all this in that point of view in my head already that, well, how, how tough must it be to be a woman on this planet of predators and not know if the next guy walking up is okay or trouble? And so I kind of had that standpoint in my mind writing about a story. Instead of it being apartment 3G, like, oh, do I love him? Do I not love him? It was more like my attitude was love is absolutely the worst thing that can happen to you. And if you realized you fell in love, you'd go home and cry about it for a week. And your friends would go, oh, my God, no, no, no. Oh, God, no. <laughs> you know? So I took that standpoint, you know, like a, like a comedian. And, but then I just kind of played it. I kind of wrote the scenes and, and with respect, you know, like these are real people and the, the damage is real. The situations may be funny, but the damage is real. And, and you have to be very careful here and treat people with respect, you know. So I kind kind of had this old Alabama Christian training in me, plus the modern world of everybody's wants to you know loosen up and do. I want to. I feel like I need to walk this way. I feel any like I need to walk that way. And what is everybody going to say? You know. So I was I was kind of like the guy. I felt like the drummer boy at the Revolutionary Battlefield, like just watching all this go on around me. And I'm just kind of writing about it at night, you know? That's how I felt. I wasn't personally involved in any of it, but I was surrounded by it. I mean, how could you not write about it? And I didn't grow up, you know, just totally all about superhero comics. So I, all I cared about was Neil Adams and Green Lantern and Jim Lee. That wasn't me. I was surrounded by artists like that, but that wasn't me. I was more like, you know, when you're a rock and roll musician, you're in everybody's house all day and you hear all these problems and you go play and you see wild things and people make bad decisions. And, and uh, you know, you have all this other world, you know, another exposure, a different exposure to the world, you know. So I brought that with me. That was my baggage. That's that that's that's amazing. Some of the situations that you that you've put your characters through did you ever get any pushback from fans like how dare you do this to Kachu or anything like that because I could I can see people easily getting really attached to these characters I mean they they've stood how long has it have you had them you've had them over nearly 30 years mm-hmm. so yeah well in the beginning when it was will she won't she you know the first five years especially um Man, if I had people would come to the show and they, and they'd put their hand out to my wife 
and say, I love your book. And she would say, oh, it's, <laughs> this bald guy next to me is Jerry. <laughs> and it's as if they, she had pointed to a turd on the floor. <laughs> they would turn and see this bald guy and they would go, oh. <laughs> and I mean, if, if the... If Terry Moore was my wife, she would be, you know, have a much more successful career. <laughs> so, yeah, it was difficult. But I got to tell you that the the gay community was very sweet to me, very respectful for the fact that here I am, this guy coming in from the other side of the lake and <laughs> and coming in and trying to tell stories. And I was accepted on the basis of the work and not on, you know, here's a straight middle-aged, white guy, bald, is the last person in the world you succeed. I look like your dentist, not like the cartoonist, you know? And, but, but I think they kind of realized that, you know, hey, maybe this guy's trapped as well, you know? Like, some of us don't feel like we're in the right skin, and maybe he's got the same syndrome in his own way. So I kind of just, they took it, they accepted me, and I, I and that was great. That's that's awesome. And it came at it through such a, through, with with so much respect and it seems like you also did your homework on stuff and uh well i've, I've always been i grew up with creative people so you'd, you'd have to be very sheltered not to have grown up like this and my cousin ben in arkansas was gay and we knew it from when we were five years old and you just grow up that way and he was one of the first victims of the aids crisis oh man and so that really bothered me a lot and I started that age story with out of respect to him to show that, you know, these lives matter. And so it was always something like that. You know, there was always something behind it. That that's, that's amazing. And my wife's, her uncle was the first man in Alabama to, to mm. die of AIDS. And mm. uh, it's because they have a very, very culturally, kind of uh, conservative family he is not talked about and it it infuriates my wife it's painful uh, yeah. to, to no end just just because i mean he he was a person he he deserves uh, compassion and love and he shouldn't be a secret right so, and that's what ben had to leave arkansas and he moved out to san francisco and uh, you know he was out there three years before he got that and, and started all all started up and he passed away. And you think about all the sweet things he did for us, our family. It was just, it's really tough pill to swallow. So I, my heart was in it when I was doing the story. Wow. wow. And I've had a soft part. I think that maybe that, you know, I, uh, there were uh, characters in our lives and we just always accepted them, but that really stuck with me and that kind of set the tone for my passionate case for this for this arrangement you know in the story now i may not have been quite that way if it hadn't been for ben and knowing ben that that's that's amazing and so you you did strangers in paradise and and you've you've came back to them a few times do you think you have any more any more stories for, for them in the future? Or are you in a place where you're happy where it's at? I think, 
I've come, I came back to them last year for SIP 25 for the 25th anniversary and kind of put them in a story that kind of brought together a lot of my books. And then this year, I've been doing this book called Five Years that they're in. But also all my other characters are in it. You know, I put all my comics into one big, big picture story. And I think at the end of this, I think that Kachu and Francine, my original characters, will have kind of passed the torch because there's a, a younger set of characters that are real, uh, kind of a little more rel- relevant to today. And at some point, you want to hope, you always hope and believe that you've earned the right to to be in a happy place and stay there for the rest of your life, you know? And I kind of feel that way about Francine Kachu. Like, you don't want to go in there and undo that and mess with that, you know? They're not, they're not James Bond. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I do have, I have, you know, some other younger characters that are happy to walk across the street and blow up a building for me. So <laughs> I think that's, you know, at this, at the end of this, I will let them get some rest. They deserve it. I don't want to, I think it can ruin something if you go back and mess with it, you know, and whoops, oh, suddenly everybody's, you know, got leprosy or something. Nope. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and this kind of, I, I will put a pin in in that for, for now, outside of, I'm wondering, in 2017, there was a, a script you were working on for for a possible film ap- adaptation has that has that progressed any further or is it is it in limbo or you know ironically the the really brief answer is that that was a first draft and i the second draft was sent to me last week oh wow yeah this so, is why they go up and accept their awards and say, thank you for having faith for nine years or 16 years. <laughs> it's just unbelievably slow. And the problem is the people you need to work with are already working and they're busy. So, I mean, it's just like it's impossible for some guy like me at my level, which is nothing for them to get the to get the time needed to, to move on these things. They, they see something, they love it. They say, Oh, that has a lot of potential. They grab it and then they sit on it and it's their pet project. And it's been on the fridge for five years. You know, it's that kind of thing, you know, but the good news is that everything is spoken for except for echo actually. So everything lives somewhere and it's all in various stages of process. And now my motto to everybody out there is in my lifetime, please, so I'm not even trying to get at anything this year. It's just like in my lifetime, please. Because if if all this stuff comes out after I'm dead and gone and it's a big hit, I'm going to be mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the artist for Preacher, like he, he at least got to see it on the small screen before he before he passed. But yeah, yeah, we, we need to see. We need to see a Strangers in Paris. Is is Rachel Rising getting? Uh-huh. Oh it's, wow! It lives somewhere, and uh-huh. Mother Girl lives somewhere. Really, uh-huh. that is that is awesome. So, can can we talk a little bit? Because you you moved on from Strangers in Paradise and and started just doing a few other personal creator owned projects, but you also went 
and did you you wrote some runaways you wrote spider-man loves mary jane how was that going from your creator on work to to working for one of the big two and then by by virtue of that having a huge team of editors over you <laughs> mm. was that hard to do it was, was it uh, it was two different experiences i did when i i did two marvel books and they gave me all the freedom in the world and then i did a dc book and it was a it was very difficult like there was so much continuity going on with the various crisis stuff that I would say I would turn in a script and have a lot of characters and 17 scenes in my script and they would send it back with three scenes and I can't use any but this one character because all the other ones are in the middle of some other continuity. So it was very difficult to do that. It was um, sure you're pulling your hair out. Um, I, I eventually I, qu- I couldn't even finish my run on the book. I just I said, OK, that's just too much. But you know, working the Marvel, the two Marvel books were uh, a tremendous fun. Yeah, yeah, and the uh, those books in particular seem like oh, that's a natural fit because I mean they they could see what you you've done and and go like oh, this is why we hired you. <laughs> you know, the one that was the most fun was the Spider Man loves Mary Jane. They I guess they just let me do what I wanted and I just had fun. And I liked this. I read Spider-Man as a little boy, and I liked his. My favorite period was in high school, during those years of discovery and you know and cockiness. And so I I was happy to do that. The one that was tricky was Runaways because you were following the great originator, Brian K. Vaughn, who was you know fantastic could do, writer could do no wrong. Yeah, <laughs> loved it. And so he was ready to move on and go to Hollywood and start working on stuff. And they needed, Josh Whedon did a short run and then they passed it to me. And so I am set up for failure. And I was really, really thinking I have to be stupid to take this one on. But I did my best. And the thing, the problem was that you're working so far in advance. I did my entire run without any feedback. So I did all of it and never knew if like, okay, is this just awful? That has to be very disconcerting, not getting (laughs) And then I, I can't remember if somebody did a short run after me, but shortly after I left it, the book died. And then I thought, oh, great, I killed it. And the book started coming about the next year. And it got, you know, people responded to it and they liked it. And I thought, well, I wish I'd known that then. I would have, you know, been a little more humorous or something, you know. But yeah, it was difficult working so far in advance because when I do my stuff, I work right on top of the deadline. And when I finish a book, back in those days, it was in the shop two weeks later. So I could, if, say, Bill Clinton was in trouble, I could make fun of it in my book and be on top. <laughs> you know? So can, can we speak on that a little bit, uh, the difference between writing uh, for your creator-owned stuff and then writing for um, for a company like Marvel or DC, and, and specifically, even even more so than that, writing for a different artist? Oh, yeah. The best thing about writing for an artist was that I could write all those things I didn't personally want to draw. Like, you know, when I'm writing for myself, my nightmare is to draw like downtown New York. You know, suddenly every window in New York 
blows out. That's in the script and you have to draw that. Well, that's a nightmare. But when it was Humberto Ramos, I could write, oh, a nice helicopter view of Malibu Beach with all those houses. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to draw that, but he was happy to draw it. And I, I wrote scenes like, oh, okay, it's the Long Beach Pier and you can see the Queen Mary too and all that, you know. And he did a great <laughs> job, you know. If it had been me, I would have had, okay, close up of head, barely in front of a Queen Mary sign. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that was the big difference. I could use the fact that I was using a fantastic artist and just take advantage of that, you know. So that was the good thing about that. But in terms of treating the characters, you just have to, I really did my homework. I read every page and every single, I read the Bible and everything else that was associated with Runaways. And, uh, you know, you really try to get in the swing of it as if you're suddenly working on the Seinfeld show. So you can't show up and it's your first week on the job at the Seinfeld show and write something that doesn't fit. You know, the problem is you now. So you don't want to be that guy. So it's like a new job. You know, you do your homework and try to know your job. I, I, I want to talk about how you compartmentalize your your creative time with your, your family time because you, you, you also worked with and did a very creative job while also having having kids but before we do that can can we talk a little bit of, did you so when you did the stuff with marvel i'm sure you had some carryover fans from strangers in paradise and and the other stuff that you've you've done creator owned did you get any any feedback from them what did were they bothered by you moving to one of the big two or, or doing stuff for the big two no i don't i never got any flack for it because i wasn't like a purist I wasn't like a drawn and quarterly fanographics guy that, you know, live into or die. You know, I wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd already done some spot jobs for all everybody. Uh, over the years, I've done a little something with everybody. So it wasn't out of the norm. And, and everybody understood that after, you know, a 12-year run on SIP, I needed a, a break. And I think I kind of announced it, too. So I took a year to do that other stuff. And then came back to do my own book again with Echo. I, th I think they kind of went okay, and I didn't catch too, any real grief over it. I did notice that I wasn't like the purists. You know, I was never going to be in Art Spiegelman's magazine or anything. And there was, I knew people who were purists, and I was friends with them, but I, I wasn't. I never claimed to be, so... I, w I was just happy to work for a living, you know, to, to draw and make comics. You know, I'm facing the crisis right now with the cl uh, collapse of Diamond Comic Distributors. I'm not quite sure how to go forward. So I may end up, I don't know, you know, going to work for Marvel is not out of the question, although I can't see that happening. But, I mean, everything's on the table again, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, well, you, you have the <clears throat> proven ability to consistently put out products. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't blame them at all for scooping you up because I well, mean, I you think the most important thing in my business is to, is to live in the now. The minute you start all your stories happened 10 years ago, you're done, you know? So you have to work in the now, live in the now, be making material now, know what readers, you know, the readers today are very different than 10 years ago. So, if you haven't been working every week, I think it'd be difficult to make the jump, you know? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Are, are you still getting people picking up uh, Strangers in Paradise and, and rediscovering it or, or discovering it anew? Yeah, and I hope that that's, I assume that that's how books work, that it's just around now. And it's like somebody reading a classic for the first time, you know, you know, everybody discovers it the first time at some point in their life. So you just hope for a lot of that from now on. I think a lot of the, the themes in it are universal. And so it, it's kind of evergreen in that way. Uh It's how a book is supposed to work. I mean, the kind of like my job is done and it's out there now and it's, it's just there for people to find or notice or whatever that other second life it has now. You know, there's two lives. There's that production life when I'm putting it out. Like the best example I can think of is think of Lewis, Lewis Carroll writing his stories, his periodicals and newspapers. And then it's collected into a book and we see it as, you know, the Scrooge story. And it's a big book that you go find now and or whatever and or Alice in Wonderland or whatever, you know. And those were written. There was a production era where people of his time were reading it as it was written a chapter at a time. And then for the rest of us, it's the book era where it's on the shelf. It's waiting for you, calling to you at some point in your life. That's where they are. So as a as a writer, like what is what helps you to to kind of recharge and and get renewed to to have new stories it's i think your mind has to keep being interested in the world around you your worst enemy is nostalgia as a writer so i i'm very i pay attention to what's going on now and if if you know the the most nostalgic thing i have in my life is my love for jazz music which goes way back so that I'm still looking at what happened in the 50s and 60s because of things like that. But I'm not looking at the comics of the 50s and 60s anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I realized the difference between, say, Robert Heinlein and Norman Mailer. The way those guys wrote back then would not work today. You know, it's that kind of their, their prejudices would show their their prose style would not read well in today's faster world because everybody has read all that it's not a it's not a new book anymore they've read everything that was you have to assume your reader has read everything you have so in in order to entertain them you've got to launch from that high point not think well this is the first time they've ever seen disjointed sentences well yeah they've seen them all it's, yeah. It needs to be your attitude. So you need to do something, you know, brand new. And that's the joy, actually. That's what makes you keep writing every day is when you can think of a scene that you've never seen before in a book or on the screen. A moment I had like that, I'll give you one, is Kachu went to visit her stepfather's grave and she squirted lighter fluid on it and set it on fire. <laughs> And he was the guy, you know, that had abused her. Yes. And I had never seen that scene on screen before, and I've never read it in a book. And I thought, I think this one's mine. And I was really happy, you know, to have that scene and to, to, to draw it and everything. So those little things are 
keep you going, you know, like I, it's the more you write, the more you're trying not to write like people you admire, the more you're trying to find your own voice because it's only when you say something original that it seemed to matter, you know, and you can write a thousand pages that read just like Hemingway. Well, we've already had a Hemingway. That's like hearing somebody play Jimmy Page. We've already got a Jimmy Page and he's out of work. Why do we need you? The clone. (laughs) (laughs) Even Jimmy can't get work doing that anymore. So, you know, play something new, you know, and that's, that's how I feel as a writer and a cartoonist. I've asked this to uh, a few different writers and, and artists before, but do you, do you listen to music while you write or, or do creative stuff? Does that kind of help propel you? Some people just like to have nothing, nothing on at all. Uh, when I'm writing, I need silence so that I can let my mind work, uh, concentrate. But when I'm drawing, I need music to keep me in the chair. It's hard to sit in the chair for you know, all day, every day for years. So the music helps keep you in the chair. Awesome. Uh, and, and I'm assuming it's jazz, right? Well, it's, it's, I love everything. So it's, I can go all the way back on all these different kinds of things, jazz, blues, rock, you know, yeah. Even country, you know, I, I have, I, as, and it's the same thing with movies. You know, I, I have my favorite, I have my heroes from every decade of the 20th century. I've been through every old movie and I mean, I'm just as big a fan of, William Powell and Myrna Loy as I am of Russell Crowe or somebody, you know? And so, yeah, you, when you're in the studio with a, a drawing board and a TV screen and a headphones, you go through all of it over 25 years. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> well, one thing I've been doing lately is we have like the, the NASA channel and I turn it on to the international space station view uh-huh. and have that on, while I'm writing or, you know, doing creative stuff. And it, it's, I don't know. I, I like the, I like the glow of it from, the, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it's really peaceful and just kind of like helps me to kind of focus on what I'm doing. Just, you know, otherwise I'm just looking at clouds. <laughs> you know, it's peaceful until that big shadow comes and that object comes from around the moon and it's slowing down. There have been a few times where where I've seen lights in the distance. I'm like, what the hell was that? (laughs) Oh, that was definitely a ship. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) A big meteor. So so your art process, I I heard you talking about just the conscious decisions you've you've put into – how you you do your artwork and the materials that you use was it always like that with uh, specifically when you started with strangers in paradise were you uh were you as conscious of that stuff because i remember reading i think uh you said that in rachel rising you did um mostly brush because you wanted a rougher feel oh uh, the other way around and, and oh, yeah i was using brush because when you grew up loving cartoon strips you know, everybody's doing brush. And so I, an animation. So it was all brush and Stranger to Paradise was mostly all brush. And, and then when I did, and I kept brush for Echo because it's, you know, silver stuff. And when I got to Rachel, I wanted to have a more frenetic, earthy, 
scratchy feel. I wanted the page to look nervous, and I want because I was a big believer, still am, in sub subliminal messaging. So I wanted everything that the eye was seeing and putting into the brain to be edgy, you know. And I would try to. So I went for more of a pen and ink approach and harsher lines and straight lines. You know, there's not a lot of straight lines in Strangers in Paradise. Everything is uh, arced. But when I got to Rachel, I started using straight lines and things like that because it's not normal to nature. You know, I'm not sure there are any straight lines in nature. So uh, even if you think they are, you put a ruler up there and you see, oh, no, it's not. So I was doing things like that. You know, I think it through because I had a lot of time to think about it. But you're trying to put that stuff there, not for the first read, but for the art teacher who goes back and reads it the third time and tries to explain why that page worked. You know, why is this, why is this any different than somebody taking a big pen and drawing something real quick? Why does this seem to have some sort of impact on you emotionally, you know? So... That's you start thinking like a painter, you know, you start thinking about what do I put in here so that somebody stares at it for 10 or 15 minutes, they can get lost. There's something to look at. You know, there's something there's another layer behind the first layer. So that's and that was, you know, part of the thing you get to do as a cartoonist. You know, you're not just drawing Batman and the cape and those boots. You're you get to draw all kinds of stuff in there that. It may take somebody two years to notice. Oh my word! Did you notice Batmite was sitting in the back seat of the Batmobile this whole time? No, I didn't see that. Look, you know, so stuff like that, you know. I, I never considered that the uh, the type of paper or the the pen you used or whatever would help set a mood, but it it totally comes through. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, because the the we see it. At firsthand, when we pick up these materials, there's the rough paper and the smooth paper and the different look between what tool you use about making a, a line. And um, it has everything to do with the personality. You know, it's and when you're trying to figure out why does my drawing suck and Frank Cho's look great, you start looking. First thing you look at is, you know, past the talent is uh, what's he using and then how does he draw and who are his influences and how does he make the head and how does he make the eye? the arm. So yeah, you get into the details. So it's, it's funny you, um, you brought up Frank Cho because um, you both are known and, and well-known and well-appreciated for, for your depictions of, of women in your art and, and for completely and totally different reasons <laughs> because Frank likes to, to draw, you know, really, um, very attractive, big booted women. And you draw people from a more like grounded, realistic perspective. And, and you've even gone so far as to do some, uh, some books about that. What was your inspiration for, for doing that in the first place for, um, for teaching people how to draw women correctly? (laughs) I don't know if it's, I think, I think I kind of picked that up from, my exposure to the European graphic novelists when I was a kid, you know, when I was in the English school system, that was the books I was reading were people from France and Belgium and all that. So yes. So I got an early chance to 
to look at the graphic novelists from Europe, you know, before I was really making my own comic. And so I always thought that that was very admirable. I love Tintin and and the way those figures were, as opposed to, say, America's Dennis the Menace, where her mom, his mom has a wasp waist, you know, and just that old 50s cartooning style. It's too icon. It's too, not iconic, but it's just, it's symbolism. It's not the real thing. It's just a symbolism of a woman. You know, it's a symbol of a woman that, and I wanted more like reality so that if somebody said my heart is breaking, it wasn't always a joke, you know, so that you could have more emotional range than just, you know, be a straight, straight woman in a straight man for a comedy gag in a comic strip, you know. So it's striving to get a little bit more realistic, but still maintain, I, you know, it's like Mort Drucker. His, his people were more realistic looking than a comic strip. And I loved it, you know, because he had a little more room in Mad Magazine. Mort Drucker, who is that? He was the cartoonist that did in Mad Magazine that did oh, the yes. satires of the movies and the TV shows. Yes. Didn't he was he, one of them. Yeah. Didn't he just pass? He did, yeah. So he's um, on but he was a big influence on me for his um, characterizations of people, you know. Um, and so his hands had five fingers that worked, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I like that. That's that's awesome. And, and it's especially in the 90s when, when Strangers in Paradise was, was first coming out and into like the, the early 2000s. Um, Women looked ridiculous in comics, and uh, the the amount, the sheer amount of pressure just put on their spines, um, was uh, mind boggling. So it was a medical marvel. Yes, yes, it's like the uh, I, I can't think of the name of. I think it was from the. It might have been a Reuben. But it was they they took the painting and figured out she would have had like eleven extra vertebra or something if if she were a real person. <laughs> but uh, it it it's really interesting to me that you you seem to come from a pure art perspective, uh, even though you you don't really have a a formal art education. But uh, you you did the the class, and I'm assuming you you went got other stuff elsewhere. And picked up stuff along the way. Uh, are you still um, exercising the, those art muscles uh, and doing stuff to to help exercise that, uh, other than your regular comics work? Yeah, it, it's kind of like a you know class one hundred one, class two hundred two, class three hundred three thing, where you don't go back to one hundred one again, but you're always learning. And <clears throat> when I was drawing as a hobby, I certainly went to the library and got one by one, got every book and went through them all. And I've heard other artists say that as well, that they also went through every book in their library, their local library. So I think that that's pretty common. It's not like somebody being interested in anything in particular, you go find all the stuff you can about it. So that's a constant self-education. And even today, I'm still looking closely at anything that is good, you know, and I follow artists on Instagram who do totally different things than me and just admire their work so much. So, yeah, you never stop that love for 
And you have to keep looking outside your own world, you know, otherwise you make the same thing over and over. Who's inspiring you right now? Uh, gosh, I don't know. I'd have to, I'd, I'd have, <laughs> I mean, questions. yeah, they're not, I, I'm th- I have a list of artists on. Are, are there any comics that are, that are blowing your hair back currently? Um, are you able to enjoy and read comics now? I'm not reading the big story uh, crossover stuff, uh, but I am always finding and discovering new cartoonists who have their personal work and they'll hand it to me or I go see the show and pick it up. And Artist Alley at the conventions is full of great new talent that, um, you know, it's a very lively scene. Um, it, it'd be nice if, um, the public could see what we all see in Artist Alley. I bet. I bet. And hopefully uh, you'll get to experience Artist Alley again sometime soon. Yeah. Uh, as we are deeply entrenched in the COVID virus. Right. So I'm going to start wrapping it up. I do have a quick question as to how do you compartmentalize your your time that you spend in, in your creative zone and, you know, being especially, you know, I'm sure when you're when your kids were younger, uh, being a dad and and a husband and, and being there for your family is how do you um, how do you achieve that work life balance or is that something that you constantly have to to struggle with? Well, it was easy because I work at home, so I was just always here and available, and got to you know be here when the kids came home from school and you know every day and. It's worked out pretty well. And I've noticed with that with other guys who are dads with kids and the house, are cartoonists, men and women who are cartoonists with kids in the house and all that. It's It works out, actually, better than you might think. So, And everybody just kind of rolls with it. This is just how we do it. That's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, Diamond Distributors right now, things are crazy with that. Comic stores are shutting down. We need comic stores. Comic stores are the lifeblood of the comics industry. Do you have any that you that you are particularly fond of? I always like to ask people where they go. What stores? Oh my yeah. gosh! I have a store in almost every city that we love, you know. And I hate to leave anybody out with a list. It's a Sophie's Choice, right? <laughs> so uh, uh, my local one here in Houston, is, I can you know vouch for them, of course, is Bedrock City Comics. And they've been great supporters all along. And they carry a complete diverse line of comics and have a great web shop. So they're available to anybody that wants to check them out. But there's a store like that in every city, I think. Oh, yeah. My, my favorite one in Birmingham is a combination tattoo parlor and comic shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Sanctum, and it's fantastic. It's a few miles away from my work, so uh, it's, it's great. It makes great sense, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so what can we do right now, do you think, to to kind of help our uh, our local comic shops? Because it is kind of on shaky ground right now. I think what uh, they're looking for right now is uh, business. So supporting your local comic shop is really important right now. And everybody's their Everybody's website is open and the mail still works. So, yeah, everybody's. Happy to sell you a comic, and we can get it to your front door. So everybody, go out, 
Order Strangers in Paradise 25. And uh... Uh, well, no, actually, uh, you know, that would be fine. But also the current series, Five Years, check it out. Awesome. Awesome. Is, is there anything else coming up that you want to talk about? I've got some uh, special special uh, edition books coming out this year, and but we're not promoting them yet. But you know, there's there's a lot coming up, so stay tuned. Awesome, awesome, Terry Moore. Thank you so much for uh, for chatting with me today. And if you have anything coming up that you want to promote or whatever, by all means, let us know, and we will utilize our our social media and all that other fun stuff. Thank you. And uh, send me a link and, and I'll boost it. And uh, awesome. thank you so much for this exposure. I really appreciate it. Uh, man, th- thank you. Uh, we we are the, the kids on the block and it, it's been an honor to be able to talk to you because uh, I've always been kind of fascinated with, with you and your story because you, you really put out stuff that not many people are, uh, are doing. And it's, it's always cool to talk to the person behind that uh, behind that book. So that's uh, thank you very much. You're very kind. Thank you. All right. Well, again, have a good one. Please stay safe. Okay. Um, you too. And, uh, yeah. Wash your hands. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye, Casey. All right, we're back. We're back after listening to Casey talk with Terry and as his illustrious career there. What'd you think? I want to go back and read Strangers in Paradise because I'll be honest, I never read it. It's you, honestly, I've read the first, I think, uh, half of it. Um, yeah. I never finished it out just because one, I it's a lot of reading. It's a lot of reading, and it was it, it was in a, it finished out in 2007, which is the time when I was getting married and wasn't reading comic books. Yeah, but I want to read it because it's a really good story, and you'll I think you'll actually really enjoy it. Yeah, he seems like a really cool guy. I, I, I'd love to have a conversation with him. Yeah, I mean, again, like I said before, every time I hear an interview with somebody that I'm not on for the show, I'm like, man, I want to be on that one. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's not you and I. Yeah. It's <laughs> You're not like, us. Oh, come on. But, I mean, I, I, I don't want Casey or Jeff to think that I don't love them doing what they do because I love their questions. I love what they do. But I'm always right. just jealous because I want to be there too. <laughs> right, right. It's, it's kind of funny. <clears throat> There's a lot that goes into this podcast. There is. And... and it's more than just hearing us talk to the interviews that you guys hear or even the uh, the tots that we like to do or the specific episodes where we bring up a concept and we talk about talk something through. Right. There's editing involved. There's websites. We have a network which shows a ton of other podcasts. A lot goes into it. So having Jeff and Casey be able to run these interviews like with Terry Moore huge help huge help and we appreciate everything those two do for us we do 100 percent. it's 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 awesome i just always want to be a part of everything so <laughs> all right guys if you enjoyed that interview i implore you to go to spoilerverse.com and check out all we have to offer because there's a lot of stuff out there on spoilerverse.com that man you could sit there's over 300 hours of content just on spoilerverse or sorry, just on spoiler country. <laughs> <laughs> but it's everywhere. I mean, we got we got so much stuff for you to check out. There's so many podcasts, our show, so many other shows out there, like Bridging the Geekdoms and Haphazard Adventures and Misery Report Radio, and the list goes on and on and on. And so much content, no paywall, all free. Just go check it out. Listen, comment, subscribe, do all the things. And while you're there, 
in the top menu bar in the middle is a button that says store. You should click on that and check out all the cool designs that are up there. Maybe you want yeah. a Spoilerverse shirt or a Bridge in the Geekdom shirt or a Spoiler Country shirt or you want something else that's up there or you want a hoodie. You can do that. And when you do that, you Get help support all. us to pay the bills and make more of this great content for you. There you guys go. Yeah. All right. I think that's a show. That's a show. Right before we leave, though, I want to let you know, if you want to help us out, go on to your favorite podcatcher, search for Spoiler Country, hit subscribe. You'll get all the newest stuff. I think I say that at the beginning of the show, so I don't know why I keep repeating it, but I think it bears repeating. On top of that, go to iTunes, go to Google Play, and maybe give us a review. It tremendously helps us a lot. Yeah, it does. It does. It tells us what you like of us. Well, you like our show, and it helps other people find the show that might like it as well. All right, guys. Don't forget, in an ocean's a podcast. We are Cthulhu. And as Cthulhu compels you to do. Go to Twitter and Facebook and tell us what compels you so we can add it right here for you. <laughs> I love it. I'm very sorry. Hold on one second. I have a very loud five-year-old. Hey, kiddo, you need to go downstairs. Mom, it's time to your interviewing. Hi. To a man named Terry Moore. Say hello, Terry. Hello, Terry. Hello in Alabama. (laughs) Say okay. Say now. Say bye, bye, Terry. Bye, bye, Terry. Bye, bye. Okay. I'm very sorry. Uh, go, baby. Go, 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 go. <laughs> Love you. That okay. is that is so cool. <laughs> that they, I'm, I'm, they like you and you want to be around you and they're interested in you, you know, like that. That's really cool. I love being a dad. Yes. It's, it's amazing. And uh, I, I have two girls, so um, oh. they, they keep me busy. Uh, be, someday they'll be the one taking care of you too. They'll they'll, they'll be decide which which home you're in. So, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> the good one or the bad one. And 